Well, Jesus lays it right on the line with this par parable, doesn't he? There's really no mistaking his message in the parable of the poor man at the rich man's gate. If you live in wealth and think only of your own pleasure and comfort, you'll end up in the wrong place in the afterlife, and there's nothing anyone will be able to do about it. Now, we know from other biblical texts that Jesus thinks that worldly goods really don't count for much and that it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom, but he doesn't say it's impossible. In fact, it's likely that some wealthy people, including women of some means, supported his and his disciples' ministry. And elsewhere, he shows compassion for people of high social stature who humbly ask for his help. In the previous parable he tells in this chapter, which is also about money, Luke tells a rather strange story about a manager who calls in his master's debts but accepts decreased payments from the debtors. The story seems to be putting much greater value on friendship and relationship than on wealth. Here, Jesus is once again responding to the Pharisees who, says Luke, were lovers of money. The story of the rich man and Lazarus puts serious emphasis on relationship. The lack of that relationship between the rich man and poor Lazarus at the gate and in contrast, the close and blessed relationship between Abraham and Lazarus. Our rich man is very, very rich. And our poor man is very, very poor. Jesus sets up the contrast between them from the beginning. The rich man dressed in great finery feasts on sumptuous food, not just once in a while, but every day. The poor man, who is named, and incidentally, this is unusual, as Jesus doesn't elsewhere in parables, parables give people names. So our poor man is so poor, he is sick and starving. His plight is horrible. He's covered in sores that the dogs are licking. He's lying at the rich man's gate, the traditional place of justice. So there's no question that our rich friend knows of his existence. He very deliberately chooses to ignore this poor, hungry beggar, perhaps too disgusted by his physical condition to even approach him. They both die, the poor man first, carried by angels to be with Father Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people. There is instant relief from suffering for Lazarus, with the promise of rest and peace in loving relationship with his spiritual ancestors. The rich man dies, and we are told, was buried. A proper burial was an important ritual in the Jewish tradition. So he's in good standing with the law at the time of his death. 
it's likely that Lazarus's body was not properly buried. The rich man ends up in Hades. Now, there's much discussion in the commentaries about Hades, the Greek underworld, or the abode of the dead, about whether being condemned to torment was or is a permanent condition, or whether at the later day of judgment souls will be freed from torment. For now, though, we know that the rich man is on the wrong side of the chasm and that he can see Lazarus and Abraham on the other side. Interestingly, the rich man reveals that he does indeed know our poor friend's name because he begs Abraham to send Lazarus over to help him. Well, let's look a little more closely at this part of the story. So this rich man ignored Lazarus and his painful existence during their earthly lives. Now, here he is, tormented by the flames and begging Abraham to send Lazarus to his aid. He's been served by others all his life, and now he's expecting to be served in the afterlife by the one he slighted and ignored every day. It doesn't appear that he has learned very much from his fate. He doesn't offer any apology, show any remorse at his lack of empathy, or beg for forgiveness for the wrongs that he's done. He still thinks of his own comfort. And when relief for his own torment is denied, his thoughts move to his own brothers and their well-being, not to the poor and needy of the world, the Lazaruses who are still alive and still in dire need of relief from earthly suffering. It's still all about me and mine for the rich man. He shows no desire for relationship with Lazarus and with Abraham, but only concern for himself and those like him. So imagine for a moment how things might have been different. What might this story have been like if the rich man had recognized Lazarus's humanity? If he had been moved by his suffering to offer him food for his hunger and medicine for his sores? Would they have get, got to know each other a little? Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps he wouldn't have dealt directly with him, but would have had his servants take food to Lazarus. But even so, wouldn't he then have asked his servant, how's Lazarus doing today? Is he looking any better? What do you know of his life? Might he have been moved to find him some kind of shelter, especially if the weather turned bad? If there was a storm in the night, might he have woken up thinking of that poor man outside the gate? Perhaps he would even have got out of bed and opened up the storeroom to allow him to sleep there. Maybe at some point he would offer him useful work, 
so he wouldn't have to be dependent anymore. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe Lazarus was too damaged by poverty or illness to be productive. But he still desperately needs and deserves help. And maybe, maybe our rich man would not have to spend eternity in torment. Now there's a moving and quite funny movie called The Lady in the Van. It came out about a year ago, and it reminds me of this story of the rich man and Lazarus and how it might have played out very differently. The main character of the movie is Miss Shepherd, and she's played by Maggie Smith. You may know Maggie Smith if you are Downton Abbey followers um, because she plays Violet Crawley or Granny in Downton Abbey. The film is an adaptation of a stage play by British playwright Alan Bennett, and it's closely based on the real story of an elderly, eccentric, extremely eccentric woman who lived in her old van in Bennett's driveway for 18 years. Now, Bennett is a successful author. By most standards, he's wealthy and lives well. Miss Shepherd was living in her van, and she moved it into Bennett's street, but she was told by the authorities that she couldn't stay parked there indefinitely. If you see the movie, it's marvelous. She decorates the outside of this van. She, she um, paints it with thick layers of something that I don't know if it's even paint, but it's brightly colored and it's very strange. Um, and this apparently is the reality of the story. So here it was parked in the street and she's told she couldn't leave it there. So she effectively told Alan Bennett that she needed to move her van into his driveway and he allowed her to do it. The movie makes it very clear. Miss Shepherd's hygiene habits leave much to be desired. She is at best certainly eccentric, probably mentally ill, but she refuses any help from social services which were, at that time in England, quite generous. Bennett agrees to allow her to stay in his driveway because he thinks he will get good material for his work, for a play. And he was right. He wrote a very successful play that played in London for a long time, and he got this movie from it, too. So his motives, you see, are not 100% pure. He's acting in the cause of art, or at least that's what he maintains. Even so, his actions allow Miss Shepherd the dignity that she feels she has by living in her chosen home. At times, she does need to come into his home for one reason or another, and Bennett allows this with little comment though he does spread out newspapers on his chairs before he allows her to sit down. There is absolutely no sentimentality in their relationship. Miss Shepherd does not act the part of the victim. 
quite the opposite, really. She seems to feel she has certain rights to the space in Bennett's driveway. And Bennett does not come across as a do-gooder in any way. At times, he's quite exasperated by her behavior, but he never asks her to leave. Indeed, after 18 years of their living side by side in this way, she dies in her van right there in his driveway. Bennett took her seriously. He gave her safety in an unsafe world. He allowed her to live in the albeit very strange way that she felt she needed to live. I don't know if he would have called himself her friend, but he honored her by forming a relationship. And then he told her story as Jesus tells us Lazarus's story. Isn't this an essential part of relationship, to tell someone's story? Miss Shepherd's was a story that could so easily have been completely lost. Bennett learned late in their relationship that Miss Shepherd had tried to become a nun. She had actually gone through the preparatory steps to becoming a to, to becoming a nun, but tragically she was unsuccessful because the nuns thought that she loved music too much and she was unwilling to give up her be beloved piano. In telling her story, Bennett gave a name to the nameless one. And he may have changed the hearts of people who might otherwise walk past the nameless ones, preferring not to look at their plight their hunger, their sores, their mental illness. Now it is hard to read this parable and to not think at least a little about the torment that the rich man experiences. I found a reference to a part of, uh, it's, it's a lengthy poem, kind of an epic poem, The Dream of Gerontius, written in the, the 1800s by John Henry Newman. It's about the nature of heaven and hell, and it states this. And these two pains, so counter and so keen, the longing for him, when thou seest him not, the shame of self at thought of seeing him, will be thy veriest, sharpest purgatory. The rich man's torment consists of the longing for God while deprived of seeing the Lord, combined with his own utter shame if he ever should set eyes on God's face. The world is full of Lazaruses who reach out for our help. How should we help them? Could you commit to sponsor a child through an organization like Save the Children to enable that child to go to school? 
could you commit to reading to a child for an hour each week right here in Hamilton County? Um, we got some posters about this reading program through United Way. It's asking for people to go just an hour a week into the schools, into the elementary schools, um, and form a relationship with a child and read on a weekly basis to that child. Unfortunately, I left the posters came here and I managed to leave them at home today because I took them out of my folder with some other papers, but I will put those up around the, the church um, uh, so that you can see them and see what that program is. Or will we work together to feed the hungry or to shelter the homeless? There are so many needs and they can be overwhelming. And all the needs of the world are certainly beyond our ability to resolve them. But there are voices at the gate that reach out to each one of us in some way. How should we respond? Amen. Now please stand if you are able, and we will say together the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> 